Welcome to The Current, a podcast series about digital transformation produced by Forbes Brand Voice with Dell Technologies and Intel. I'm your host, Michael Copeland. We're here in Boston at Massachusetts General Hospital with Dr. Mark Michalski, who's the executive director of the hospital's Center for Clinical Data Science. Dr. Marshalski trained as a radiologist, but also has a foot in cybernetics, which looks at the nexus between people and machines. And he's also studied investigative medicine, spent some time as an entrepreneur in the medical field. Mark, you've 3D printed brains, hearts, <laughs> hips, yeah. lots of bones. Yeah, lots of different things. Well, yeah. well, well welcome and thanks, <laughs> thanks. thanks for joining us. Now, look, th this center and your job uh, didn't exist so long ago. And <laughs> I, I was looking as we were coming into the office, the stated goal of the center is to change the way the world practices medicine. And given your background, this combination of medical training and really computer science, it seems like that might have also been your personal goal. Yeah, I think that's right. I, you know, you can ask my uh, my boss, <laughs> the chairman of the department. Uh, he was actually one of the guys who trained me. And uh, one of the stories is about two months into my residency training, uh, I realized that uh, radiology was less engineering, which is what I had kind of hoped for and was a little bit more art appreciation than I expected. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, uh, I was really looking for quantitative sciences. And uh, I think just at a high level, um, uh, bringing quantitative, longitudinal, repeatable testing is like one of those things that engineers really love, um, but uh, it's something that medicine lacks a little bit today. When the center was started, the Center for Clinical Data Science here at Mass General, what was the thinking and, and what did you want to bring to bear, you know, that combined these worlds of medicine and honestly combined your interests? Sure. Well, I think that we're coming into an interesting time in medicine and technology. Um, the capabilities of um, machine learning have expanded pretty considerably. Um, it presents this opportunity to really bring precision to medicine. And we've talked about precision medicine before, but um, it's something that within medical imaging has often been a hard thing to, to really bring. Um, let, let me just back up a little bit. Um, precision medicine and the kind of the older version of it was I'm going to do something specifically for you, a specific person, or, or what did it describe? Yeah, I think it is about bringing something for a particular cohort of people or a person, and really came out of this, um, out of genomics and genetics. We have difficulty with precision throughout medicine, not just in uh, therapeutics, but also in diagnosis. So the way that we interpret images um, in pathology, the way that we look at slides, um, this is where we first determine uh, not just what um, not just what is um, um, the potential disease, but actually learning more about the patient, his or herself. Um, artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, is really presenting this opportunity for us to become very precise and. Uh, in some cases, even automated, um, in in understanding what the patient, you know, who the patient really is. Well, walk us through that because, and and walk us through in this context what machine learning is, and how it learns, for that matter, mm. and kind of what it's good at. Yeah, sure. Well, a lot of what we're hearing about artificial intelligence, machine learning, 
came out of the computer vision community. Um, so there was a bit of a sea change in the way that uh, um, computers uh, interpreted images around 2012. Um, since that time, we've seen an explosion in this technique, deep learning. And what that has really done has made um, um, the interpretation of images, or, or rather the classification of features within those images, say, you know, identifying a tumor or drawing a line around uh, the left ventricle, that task has become scalable much easier uh, as long as you have annotated data. And what that does for us is it allows us to create systems much more readily, much more, it's, it's, it's much easier to create these systems that are, are highly accurate. And these systems can be applied broadly. So for example, we can create systems that look at the size of your heart, look at uh, your aorta, look at your liver, look at your lungs, look at your brain, and compare them against the population, give you a sense of what's the same, what's different. So you can actually start to group people into different clusters, uh, and that's important for um, treatments, that's important for diagnosis. So this image recognition, and, and I think what, what you describe is, I mean, originally the, it was all, and the internet is run by cats, but it was to recognize, you know, <laughs> right. like, is this a cat or is this not a cat? Uh, yeah. And in this case, this deep learning approach is to learn and recognize tumors or the size of a heart, the, I don't know, looks or the appearance of a ventricle. Are these systems being deployed now, and are, are they in use, and are they doing a good job? They're being deployed now, so we're starting to see the first clearances uh, um, just beginning to come out. So where these systems uh, have been in the works for a while, but we have a much, much uh, larger pipeline behind these initial models. Uh, whether they work well or not, uh, I think we're going to find that out clinically, but in the laboratory, they're doing a pretty good job. And what kinds of things you mentioned, you know, looking at the size of a heart and, um, mm -hmm. but what kinds of things are these systems that are trained? Are they are showing good signs for? Sure. Well, you know, the way that I think about this is there are some things that we as humans do today that we can recognize and teach machines to do. And then there are things that we can't do, that we don't recognize. So I'll give you an example. We're using uh, machine learning to recognize bone age. So uh, this is uh, taking an x-ray of a hand of a pediatric patient and uh, determining what the age, the bone age of that hand is. That's an important diagnostic signal for, uh, for patients that may not be growing normally. Um, if the bone age is concordant, that tells you that puts you in one path. If it's discordant, it puts you in another. And the way that we do this today in the reading room is we actually get out an old book and we try to determine which uh, hand looks the most like the hand that we're seeing oh, on the screen. Wow. That's what we do today. This it's like a yellowed book. The page is falling out. You're attending, trained with it. I mean, it's it's all this. It's uh, it's yesterday's technology for sure. Um, we're now using machine learning to determine exactly what the what the what this hand looks like in terms of the bone age, but that's in research right now. Now that's one of those things that we as humans can do, but there are also th and we can use this technology to become more accurate, quicker, just faster uh, and more precise. Um, but there are things that we can't do that machine learning may enable us to do. 
For example, we're starting to see features that machine learning is detecting that I can't see as a radiologist, but may be important for prognosis. We think about it, we describe it as texture. Um, these little features, this sort of um, things that really we can't determine. They haven't become, they haven't manifested it as some clear indicator of whatever it is you're looking for. Right. I mean, these are things that, um, you know, we know that there there are some obvious signals within images. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you have a gunshot wound, I know what happened because I can see the bullet. But in some of these um these processes that we just don't understand as well, degenerative diseases in the brain, for example, there may be features in that image um, that we can't see as humans or we just haven't thought to look, and we're going to use machine learning to find those signals. We're already starting to see early indications that that might be possible. The other thing that machine learning um, does an incredibly good job of is kind of hold everything, you know, in a data <laughs> set, right? And, yeah. You know, I can't remember three people's names, let alone, <laughs> you know, three billion names or images or whatever it is. So how does that change diagnosis and, and also maybe prognosis? Yeah, I love that question. So when you think about a person or a patient, uh, we tend to think about them as laboratory values or uh, images or a collection of clinical notes, but there's so much more to it. And as a radiologist, I'll focus on just one area, clinical images, or as a cardiologist, cardiologists might just focus on one particular aspect, maybe some clinical notes and the echocardiography, the EKG. Um, but there's this, this picture of a patient that we have, but no one really can weave together. And there's even more data out there that we're just not seeing, you know, your, uh, your, your, uh, data from your wearable, your um, your uh, posts on your social media. Uh, these actually may have important implications for how you're feeling. You may, you know, post more if you're worried or post less if you're feeling sick. Um, those feeds, that collective set of data, uh, we're not really capturing, but machine learning may be able to uh, see something that we can't see. The grand challenge, though, there is making sure that all that data is all kind of in the same place. Well, and also, I, and there's a there's a question of quality of data too. I know mm. that this is not medical grade. This thing that I'm wearing on my wrist, you know, or <laughs> you know, sleeping with. How is that evolving in the world of medicine? Like, you know, you mentioned these consumer um, gizmos. Mm -hmm. um, are those going to play more and more of a role in kind of our own health? And and do I, as a patient, kind of bring my data to you, the physician, and say, okay, here, here's what I collected. You go make sense of it now. I think data that we collect as patients individually, um, there's real potential there. Uh, whether it will impact our healthcare uh, in a meaningful way, I'd say right now one of the challenges is getting that data in a meaningful uh, package to uh, the practitioner. Uh, you know, practitioners don't see this data. Actually, don't even often know how to interpret it. I yeah, I mean, if I if I walk into my doctor's <laughs> office and just open up my laptop and go, okay, look, here it is. <laughs> I think I'd glaze over. I'm not sure I'd know what to do with all that that data. But um, I think the grand challenge there is not so much a data science uh, challenge as much as a data engineering challenge right now. Um, and then once you get all that data in the same place, 
then we have this other challenge, which is to try to figure out whether it's meaningful or not. Um, so I think there's, a, there's, there's some work to do there. Um, on the other hand, again, we're seeing early indication that there is value in these kinds of technologies and in wearables and tapping into the way that you interact with your environment at your home. You can certainly measure that more frequently, right? More time periods uh, um, tell you something, give you a different perspective on a patient than, say, your single clinical note that you see when you see your doctor every year or so, or the MRI that only happens every once in a while. Right. And and by the way, when I go to the doctor, maybe I'm a little bit nervous, right. or, you know, <laughs> amped up or whatever That's it is. Right. And so yeah. it's not the kind of normal picture of myself. The Current is produced by Forbes Brand Voice with Dell Technologies and Intel. Yeah. So it's the Center for Clinical Data Science. Mm. How are you guys solving this, this problem that you just described of data engineering and data mm-hmm. presentation for your fellow physicians? Because you, I think, and you tell me if I'm wrong, <laughs> are a bit of an odd duck in the sense that like, you're this combination of physician and computer nerd, let's be honest. <laughs> um, does everyone need to be a data scientist as a physician and, and or does the data get presented to them in, in ways that they can start to use? No, you know, I don't think that every physician is going to become a data scientist, but I think every physician will be influenced increasingly by data. And so the way that we think about this problem, the first set of real problems is really about, uh, again, data engineering, this concept of making sure that um, data is is sort of accessible, interpretable, cleaned. Um, That's one of the big challenges, even within a healthcare system are um, getting all the data together in, in uh, a meaningful place, in a place uh, where you can meaningfully ask questions. That is a real challenge. Um, once you start pulling that together, then you can actually have all sorts of interesting questions that you can start to ask. Um, and in that way, I think um, the first set of challenges really are about aggregating data, annotating it, that is, you know, interpreting it and making meaning out of that data. I think that's the first set of real grand challenges. When you succeed in in surpassing or surmounting those challenges, when you start to change the practice of medicine, what does that start to look like both for physicians in this kind of new world? Let's say you do the data engineering. So how does that change my job as a doctor? Mm. And then how does that change my experience, do you think, as a patient? Whenever you bring technology into a, a new field, there's always this thought that you'll maybe do less. So one of the things that you might see is that uh, physicians will look less harried or less stressed out because there's a lot more automation in, in his or her life. On the other hand, I think tech, uh, the history has sort of shown that what you do when you add technology to a field is you actually do more. So uh, what you might start to see as a, as a patient is you might start to see more frequent testing in a way that is uh, empowered by automation, allows you to get a better perspective on the patient. Um, That is to say that as these technologies start to evolve, you actually get um, more signals that get added together 
that allows you to see the patient more holistically eventually allows you to uh, diagnose much quicker or now, treat more effectively. I, now, th- this sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but so for example, in the digital engineering realm, I can a- actually simulate and have a digital copy of a massively expensive commercial jet engine, right? Mm-hmm. Does this then lend itself to, are we going to get to a place where we have this kind of digital copy of ourselves and we can start to predict and hopefully just sort of keep the oil changed and keep (laughs) running along? I think you got it. I think that's right. As we get uh, closer and closer to this uh, data reflecting uh, reality, um, then you start to see things sooner. Uh, You treat more effectively. And ultimately, this is all about outcomes, right? And of course, there's the potential to decrease costs. So, you know, I think um, there's a real potential to do um, both of those things. Increase the effectiveness in healthcare while reducing costs. That's actually phenomenal. That right? sounds pretty good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you see this? You, you talked about imaging. Like, how does it roll out in the practice of medicine? Like, mm-hmm. where are we going to see? And maybe we don't really ever recognize it as such from the patient side, but maybe we will. Where does it roll out first, and kind of how does it then extend across the spectrum of care? Well, I'll tell you, uh, from a personal perspective, I think lots of uh, people have family members, including my own, uh, where radiology reports or pathology reports, uh, they, they can depend largely on, on interpreting physicians. And that's just the nature of, of the way that radiology or pathology and many diagnostic specialties exist today. Um, and uh, I think the first thing you may see is that uh, your reports, if you ever look at your reports, if you ever sort of get that data, you'll start to see that it's normalized in a way, uh, automated. Uh, automation uh, breeds normalization and standardization. And I think that that's important. I, I believe that it's important uh, for an MRI that's done in uh, on one coast to look very much like an MRI on the other coast. Right. Uh, and I think that that um, that's the first thing you'll start to see, uh, and in a real, real, real way that I think that that breeds trust. I think that's something that when your when your second opinion, your third opinion, really starts to yield the same results. Uh, when um, when you don't have to rely on on uh, different clinicians or di- in different diagnosticians to give you um, um, sort of a spectrum of interpretations. Uh, I think that's really powerful for for trust and obviously important for treatment. So diagnostics is kind of the first big realm where this shows up. Um, And then where does it go from there? Well, I think diagnostics is uh, the foundation for treatment oftentimes. So when you understand the patient better, then that allows you to do things like tailor treatments uh, for patients. Uh, allows you to see things sooner, more clearly. So when you have the whole digital picture of the patient all together, then uh, you're seeing things um, sooner and much more clearly. That allows you to uh, treat uh, uh, in a way that's tailored for the patient. We're actually starting to enter a realm truly of precision medicine. While we've been talking about that for a long time, I think it's for us to really materialize that, it's, it has to go just beyond, say, genomics. It has to be genomics and uh, all your digital data, your, the way uh, you look on, in an MRI or an echo or in your pathology or your clinical laboratories. 
Um, that entire whole view of the patient is what enables real precise treatment. You talked about normalized data. Um, are you as a, as a profession and kind of as an industry and as approach, are you going to standardize or are we going to get into some Windows, Mac, <laughs> OS X? Like, okay, sorry, you can't go to that doctor because that they operate on a different OS and your data needs to go to this hospital because, you know, they only run on these machines kind of thing. So I don't think it will be quite like that. But I think within the medical profession, there are a lot of different opinions about the way that you interpret uh, even the same exam. So I think we in the medical profession have a lot of work to do to listen to the data and to try to coalesce around some uh, gold standard approaches about the way that we interpret this data so that we as a community can really, really come together, normalize, start to act the same, treat the same, diagnose the same. That's really, really important for precision. Will this be taught in schools more and more? I mean, again, it seems like you forged your own path in many ways to, to getting to this place. Um, will it be taught in schools and will it be no commonplace? Like, do I have to come to Mass General if I want to kind of get this approach or do I get to get it at my own local hospital? Well, I think that uh, from the training perspective, uh, I get a lot of questions from pathology and radiology residents asking me if they should even go into this field because there's our machine's going to take, take my job. And I think to myself, my goodness, this is the best time to be doing this field, these fields and diagnostic specialties. We're going to see a revolution. And um, the, the results that come from these machines, at least for the foreseeable future, um, automation is just part of the practice. And it will allow us to be better doctors. And ultimately, didn't, isn't that why we all went to medical school? Do I have to come to Mass General and come to Boston um, to, to get this kind of approach? Or is it going to, is this kind of data science approach to medicine going to blossom around the, the nation, not to mention the world? Well, you know, I think that a lot of academic medical centers are pushing the forefront of this technology. So places like Brigham and Mass General really um, are doing a lot of the, the science. But um, part of the reason for uh, what we're doing at the center is to take this technology and disseminate it. Uh, we do that with partnerships, and we do that by uh, talking about it at meetings. I, I think that right now the science is, is developing in academic centers, but I don't think it will be long before you see this kind of technology um, in Main Street. Well, and, and the point, though, is also for it to get better, for outcomes to get better at the end of the day, it's all about scale, right? It's bringing in more data. Yeah, you got it. Absolutely. So I think what may be true for us here in Boston may not be true across the world. So in a very real way, this technology, this science has to get widely distributed. It has to be democratized or else we were really missing an opportunity. Yeah, because it seems to me that if there's a patient on the other side of the world that has similar indications that I do here, the odds of those two data sets kind of connecting and somebody going, aha, I've seen this yeah. before, are pretty slim. Pretty slim. And uh, if you're taking the same approach with both patients, you may be getting the wrong sense out of that data. Uh, I'll give you an example. In, in East Asia, 
many places, they do examinations with clothes on to increase volume. And those CT scans look different. They just may look different. So we have to find a way to, to normalize these, these results in a way so that uh, findings there uh, can help patients here and likewise, and ben- benefit likewise. Oh, that's interesting. I never, yeah, of course there's yeah. different ways of doing things in different parts <laughs> of, of the course. world. Of course, yeah. Medicine's absorbed and adopted technology from the get-go, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's been drugs or a new bone saw or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. But it, it has this reputation as being slow to adopt. Mm. Um, and, and maybe for good reason, right? It's our health and right. our, our lives right. at stake. But how, how does this roll out? How, when, do, when do we see as patients, oh, my God, here's the, here's the machine learning thing that Mark was talking about? <laughs> well, you know, if you think about other kinds of uh, big technologies, let's say uh, uh, genomic sequencing, uh, we've seen the benefit of that slowly but surely uh, uh, impact patients through treatments, through other kinds of diagnostics. And if you happen to have one of the diseases that's been impacted by genomics, you really feel it. But it, it, it does proceed in sort of this incremental way. I think with technology, though, uh, it moves at a much more rapid clip, right? And um, I think that we're going to start to see incremental benefits, but I think that they'll happen at a much faster rate. So. We, we as patients, at least, are used to this kind of binary where either there's a cure or there's not. And what you're talking about is a different approach to essentially getting to better health. Sure, it's yeah. incremental step-by-step, step and, and maybe that's what we need to get used to. Yeah, I mean, listen, no one can debate that the Internet has gotten better, right? It's just gotten better. Like, little pieces have gotten better. Search has gotten better, email... Well, yeah, it's gotten better, but (laughs) things things are getting sort of incrementally better. Technology is moving fast. Um, I think that we'll see the same in healthcare. I don't know that you'll ever be able to say this was the moment when uh, machine learning and data science really changed healthcare. And I don't think you'll be able to say artificial intelligence changed healthcare on this date. Um, But I think what will eventually happen is it'll just become normal. You don't even think about it. And in fact, I'm not sure that we'll ever really think about, oh, this is artificial intelligence in medicine. It's just when artificial intelligence becomes part of medicine, it'll just be medicine. And we'll rely on it and we'll trust it and we won't even notice it, like you say. I think so. Dr. Mark Michalski, Center for Clinical Data Science. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Current a podcast series about digital transformation produced by Forbes Brand Voice with Dell Technologies and Intel. Let Dell Technologies Cloud Solutions, powered by Intel, show you the power of digital transformation. Intel inside, powerful productivity outside.